mean, we have really got to look at our budget for this next month, especially with the holidays coming up. We went way over. Cheryl, how did you even spend $50 at Chick-fil-A? We've got Christmas coming. We've got to get this thing under control. No more spending, okay? No more spending. Honey, what you doing? Nothing. Just looking. What you looking at? Pictures. Oh. Yes. I'll take one. I'll take two. Oh, yeah. That is perfect for the kids. Huh. Didn't even know I needed that one. Oh, yeah. Let's get that in blue. Doorbell. Oh, I'll get it. I'll get it. I got it. I got it. Let me get it. Let me get it. Hey, Northside Delivery. Did you guys order any packages? You didn't? Hmm. Cheryl Gettings, got a package here for you. And this one says, Michael Gettings, here you go. Here's your packages. Then it again, I guess. I'm so glad I have my parents' passwords. This is gonna be a great Christmas gift. Hey, it's me, Steven, from Northside Delivery. Guess what? Here's the car that you purchased. This is right, it's your car. Merry Christmas to you. See ya. Uh-oh. Mom, Dad, I may or may not have bought a car. If you have your Bible with you, let me encourage you to hold it up and repeat after me what we believe about this book. This is God's Word. It is a perfect treasure of divine instruction. It has God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter. It is the supreme source of truth. For what we believe and how we live. Now turn with me in your copy of God's Word this morning to Genesis chapter 41. Genesis, first book of the Bible, just turn on over there to chapter 41. Last week we started a short three-part series that we've called Money Management Made Simple. And last week, we looked at the first principle, the first truth of money management, and that is you have to live within your means. You can't spend more than you take in. Your income has to exceed your outflow or you're going to be in trouble. And we discovered two principles that will help us to live within our means. The first principle is to develop a budget and live by it. A budget is simply a spending plan. So we develop a budget and we live by that budget. The second principle, the second truth is the secret of contentment. We learn to be content with what we have. Because if we don't learn to be content with what we have, we're going to end up spending and all of a sudden we're going to find ourselves in debt and we're not going to be able to afford all the things that we've bought. So we've got to live within our means. But today, I want us to look at the second principle, and that is we have to save for the future. And here's the problem. Most studies reveal that Americans aren't very good at saving. Now, when I was growing up, 
I had one of these. If you don't know what this is, it's a, it's a piggy bank, and I had one of these when I was growing up. Now, a piggy bank has an interesting history. Piggy bank originated in the Middle Ages. It, it first of all, was a pig bank, P-Y-G-G. Pig is a soft clay. And from this soft clay, they would make saucers, they would make cups, they would make pans. And over time, they, they eventually started to make these special containers that they would put their money in. And it was a pig bank. But in the 18th century, they discovered that the word pig, P-Y-G-G, sounded a lot like pig, P-I-G, the animal. And potters began to make these piggy banks, these clay banks that look like pigs for kids. And hence, we came up with the piggy bank. And like I said, I had one growing up, and, and I would put my spare change in it. I would put my dollar bills that I got in it at, at Christmas time or at birthdays. And, and whenever there was something that I wanted to buy, I would open up my piggy bank to see if I had enough money to purchase that thing that I wanted to buy. Unfortunately, it seems like many of us, maybe most of us, have either never developed or we've never gotten into the habit of saving our money in a piggy bank. The reality is we're not saving our money at all. Now, let me give you my definition of saving if I can. Here's my definition. Saving is setting aside money we have today so that we will be better prepared for what happens tomorrow. Let me say that again. Saving is when we set aside money that we have today so that we will be better prepared for what happens tomorrow. Now, that's simple, isn't it? But here's the reality. Many Christians are confused when it comes to saving. There are even some Christians that say saving isn't biblical, that the Bible speaks against saving. They say that, that saving represents a, a lack of faith. Saving represents misplaced priorities. And they even take the words of Jesus to try to convince us that we shouldn't save our money. For instance, there are some people that take what Jesus said in, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. Jesus said this. He said, don't store up treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal. So that seems to say, don't store up treasures, don't save. And then it goes on to say, store your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. And so they say, see, Jesus said, don't store up money, don't save. But Jesus isn't saying here that it's wrong to save. He's not saying that it's wrong to store up treasures for the future. Those people who say that are totally missing the point of this passage. Jesus is speaking to the heart here. He's speaking to our priorities. Because in the very next verse, this is what Jesus says. He says, where your heart is, there your treasure will be as well. And so what Jesus is saying is, is your heart right with me? Or is your heart focused on the things of this world? Are you investing in the things of this world? Or are you investing in eternal things? You see, the way we use our resources will reveal our heart. 
Jesus is not condemning saving right here. He is condemning a materialistic heart. Well, then these people will say, okay, but Jesus told a story that is certain to say we shouldn't save. It's the story of the rich fool. Do you remember that story? There was this rich fool. Listen to the story. It's it's found in Luke 12. Jesus said, a rich man had a fertile farm that produced fine crops. He said to himself, what should I do? I don't have room for all my crops. Then he said, I know. I'll tear down my barn and build bigger ones. Then I will have room enough to store all my wheat and other goods. Then I'll sit back and say to myself, my friend, you have enough stored away for years to come. Now take it easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. God said to him, you fool, you will die this very night. Then who will get everything you worked for? Yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth, listen, but not have a rich relationship with God. You see, in this story, the man wasn't a fool because he stored up provisions for years to come. He was a fool because he left God out of his life. He was this world-centered. He was focused on earthly wealth while neglecting a relationship with God. He, He thought that his wealth and what he could provide for himself would give him security when in reality he had never prepared for eternal life. Now you could take these passages or a hundred other passages and you could try to convince yourself that the Bible speaks against saving, that if we save money, we're not living and operating by faith, and yet you would be mistaken because the Bible clearly teaches That saving for the future is a wise principle that each and every one of us need to develop in our life. But the passage that I want us to look at this morning to kind of, to help us understand why we need to save is found in Genesis 41. And we're going to start reading in verse 25 in just a minute. But I want to give you a little bit of background before we jump into this passage, okay? This passage is found right in the center of of a story about Joseph. Remember Joseph? At 17 years old, he had this dream. He had this dream that one day he would be a very powerful man. But his brothers hated his dream. And his brothers turned against him. And his brothers decided they wanted to kill him. But one brother said, let's don't kill him. Let's sell him into slavery. And so Joseph ended up being sold into slavery. He ended up in Egypt. He was sold to a man named Potiphar who was the captain of Pharaoh's guards. Pharaoh was the ruler of Egypt, the most powerful man in the world. Well, in Pharaoh's house, Joseph lived for the Lord. And because of that, God blessed him. But but he was unjustly accused of something by Pharaoh's wife. And he was thrown in prison to rot, to languish. And while he was in prison, he met two men. He interpreted their dreams. One dream ended up pretty good for the guy. The other dream ended up not so good for the guy. And Joseph said, when you get out, remember me. And the man said, I will, but he didn't. He forgot Joseph. So Joseph is there languishing in prison all by himself. Until one night, Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world, has a dream. It is a dream that so disturbs him that he can't go back to sleep. 
He can't get the dream off of his mind. And so he calls all of his wise men together to interpret the dream. But none of them could interpret the dream. And then he was told by the cupbearer of Joseph who interpreted his dream while he was in prison. And so Pharaoh had Joseph sent for, got him cleaned up, and Pharaoh came, or Joseph came before Pharaoh and was told his dream. And that's where we pick up in verse 25 of chapter 41. Listen to God's word. Joseph responded, both of Pharaoh's dreams mean the same thing. God is telling Pharaoh in advance what he is about to do. The seven healthy cows and the seven healthy heads of grain both represent seven years of prosperity. The seven thin, scrawny cows that come up later and the seven thin heads of grain withered by the east wind represent seven years of famine. This will happen just as I have described it, for God has revealed to Pharaoh in advance what he is about to do. The next seven years will be a period of great prosperity throughout the land of Egypt. But afterward, there will be seven years of famine so great that all the prosperity will be forgotten in Egypt. Famine will destroy the land. This famine will be so severe that even the memory of the good years will be erased. As for having two similar dreams, it means that these events have been decreed by God and he will soon make them happen. Therefore, Pharaoh should find an intelligent and wise man and put him in charge of the entire land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh should appoint supervisors over the land and let them collect one-fifth, 20% of all the crops during the seven good years. Have them gather all the food produced in the good years that are just ahead and bring it to Pharaoh's storehouses, store it away, and guard it so there will be food in the cities. That way, there will be enough to eat when the seven years of famine come to the land of Egypt. Otherwise, this famine will destroy the land. Now, notice what Joseph says. He says there's going to be seven years of prosperity. There's going to be seven years of plenty in the land of Egypt. But then after this time of plenty, there is going to be seven years of severe famine and drought that is so bad that if they're not prepared for it, it could destroy Egypt. It will be so bad, the Bible says, that no one will remember the good times of plenty because it is so bad during the times of famine. Then Joseph said, because of this Pharaoh, you need to appoint someone who will be in charge of all the country. And during the seven good years, you were to take one-fifth, 20% of all the grain that is produced during these years and you were to store it and you were to guard it in a safe place so that there will be food in the land during the years of famine. And the story goes on to say that Pharaoh heeded Joseph's advice that came from God and appointed Joseph to be in charge. And when the lean years hit, not only was Egypt blessed, but other people were blessed, including Joseph's brothers that were sold into slavery. 20% stored away during the seven years of plenty was more than enough to save Egypt and many others during the times of famine. I want you to think about it. If they had not set aside that 20%, and plan for the future, then not only would have the people of Egypt have died in the famine, Joseph's family 
and many others in the world would have died in the famine. And you and I would be without hope. And you say, Rocky, what are you talking about? Wait just a second there. No, you see, if Pharaoh hadn't followed Joseph's advice and saved for the time of famine, you and I would be without hope. The reason is because Jesus, the Savior of the world, the one who brings hope, came from the line of Judah. Judah was one of Joseph's brothers that sold him into slavery. Judah, Judah would have most likely died during that famine if there had not been food to purchase in Egypt. And if Judah had died in the famine, Jesus would not have been born. And you and I would be without hope. Now listen, our saving for the future is not going to bring the Savior into the world. He's already come, amen? But your saving for the future can save you and your family a world of hurt, save them from a world of hurt and a world of pain. Your saving for the future could bless you, it could bless your family, and it could bless many other people. But listen, if you're going to save for the future, it's going to require discipline. And the problem is many of us are unwilling to be disciplined during the time of plenty so that we will have something during the time of famine. And so I want to share with you three biblical principles about saving. And then I want to share with you five reasons that Sherry and I save. Here's principle number one. Wise people save a portion of what they make. Joseph was a wise man. But the Bible tells us that Solomon was the wisest man to ever live. And in the book of Proverbs, chapter 21, verse 20, this is what it says. It says, the wise man saves for the future, but the foolish man spends whatever he gets. So what is that saying? It's saying that a wise man takes some of what he makes and saves it, set it aside for the future. But a foolish man spends everything that comes into his hands. Nothing is left to save. Solomon went on to say in Proverbs 30, there are four things on earth that are small but unusually wise. Ants, they aren't strong, but they store up food all summer. Now, ants aren't strong, but the Bible says that ants store up food during the summer when food can be found so that when winter comes and food can't be found, they have something to eat. And Solomon says because of that, they are wise. You see, if we don't save a portion of what we make today for what may happen tomorrow, we're going to get caught unprepared and it's going to be very painful for us. George Burns, the comedian who lived to well over 100, said, People tell me I should save for a rainy day, but with my luck, it'll never rain. Now I'll get stuck with the money. But let me say, there's a whole lot of things worse than getting stuck with money. Amen? And can I warn you? It's going to rain. It's always going to rain. It wasn't raining when Noah built the ark, but he was told it was going to rain. And so he began to build that ark so that he would be prepared for it. I want you to hear me. We all will experience 
rainy days that we need to prepare for. Money Magazine says that 78% of us will have a major economic event every 10 years. 78% of us will have a major economic event every 10 years. It may be the loss of a job. It may be the loss of our health where we have to go on disability. It could be a host of things, but 78% of us are going to have something major happening to us economically every 10 years, and many of us are unprepared for it. The wise save for the future. Second, wise people save step by step. Solomon says it this way in Proverbs 13, verse 11. He says, wealth gained hastily will dwindle, but whoever gathers little by little will increase it. What he's saying there is we don't save for the future with get-rich-quick schemes. Because get-rich-quick schemes hardly ever pay off. If you think that you're going to set aside $10, $15, $20 a week and buy lottery tickets and you're going to support yourself in your retirement through that, one billionth of 1% of us are going to be happy the rest of us are going to be unhappy because we're not going to be the one that wins the lottery. The Bible says that if we gather money little by little, it will increase. And what's that saying? It's saying that if I set aside even a small amount on a regular basis, over time, it will become more and more and more. That's the secret of compound interest. When I set aside a little bit of money over a long period of time, that little bit of money can become a lot of money. Let me give you an example. And, and trust me, this example doesn't play out. I get it, but I just want to give you an example. Let's just suppose that, that you save $35 a week. Most of us who work can do that if we want to. You say, I don't have $35 a week. Okay, just this week, just look at how much money you spend on things you don't have to spend it on. You go and you get a coffee from, from the coffee shop. That's $6 right there. You go through Chick-fil-A to eat. If, you, if you're buying for two people, that can be 20 bucks. I mean, it's just crazy. You, you, take, you, you, you buy your, your lunch at work rather than taking your lunch. So you, so you can find $35. You find $35 a week. In one year, that equals $1,800. If you take that $1,800 while you're in your 20s and you set it up in some type of mutual fund that can earn 10%, and hear me, you're not going to earn 10%. Everybody uses that 10% formula. I wish. You know, if you're earning regularly 10%, let me know where you're investing in and whether you've been doing it for a long period. And, you know, I, I want to get in on it. Because mine over 40 years hasn't averaged 10%. And so I would love to get in on that. But let's just say it's 10% because that's easy for us to figure out. In, over, in 40 years, when you're in your 60s, you'll have over a million dollars. Over a million dollars. Just saving $35 a week. A little bit because of compound interest can become a lot. And so you save little by little, step by step. And then principle three, wise people save money in wise ways. Listen to what it says in Ecclesiastes 11 verse 2. It says, put your investments in several places, many places even, because you never know what kind of bad luck you're going to have in this world. This is the principle of diversification. 
You see, it's foolish to put all of your eggs in one basket. Now hear me, I'm not a financial planner. So don't come to me for your money advice. But I am giving you a biblical truth. The biblical truth is diversify. If someone comes to you and says, you need to invest in, and they give you the stock, and they say, you need to put all your money in this because it's going to double in the next two months, I would tell you that the Bible says, don't put all your money in that. It may double in two months. And you're going to feel terrible that you didn't put all your money in that. But if it tanks in two months, you're going to feel awful that you put all your money in that. I'm not going to throw my son Matt under the bus. Actually, I am. So Matt, last year, two years ago, he's not my financial planner, by the way. We're on a staff retreat, and we're all sitting around the fire and talking, and Matt told how he had invested in AMC, and it was going to go through the roof. Matt told me, don't sell until it hits 1000 uh, We bought it. $12. Don't sell until it's a thousand. Now AMC, and we didn't, trust me, we didn't buy a lot, but we bought some. And most of our pastors bought some, by the way, Matt. <laughs> but so, so we bought AMC, and lo and behold, AMC went up. I bought it like, or my wife, I didn't buy, my wife bought, because she trusts Matt. I, I had a little more discernment than my wife. But she bought some, a couple of thousand dollars of AMC at $12. And lo and behold, it began to go up. And it went up to over $70. That's a big jump. Matt said, don't sell. Don't sell. It's going to go up to 1000 I said, Matt, if it, if it hits 500 shit, we said, no, it's going to hit 1000 I tell you, I'm following these people. Well, the problem is, is it hit up somewhere $70, $80, and then all of a sudden it just started going down like this. And our AMC stock, it's not worth what we pay for it right now. I, I don't, I, it's not worth half of what we paid for it right now. I'm glad that we didn't take all of our savings and pour it into AMC. That would have been foolish. You see... The Bible tells us that wise investing is diversifying. That's why, and again, I'm not a financial planner, but that's why most people who are not financial whizzes don't invest in the stock market. They invest in mutual funds because mutual funds are invested in a variety of things. And so if one of the funds is not doing well, Hopefully, the other funds are going to be doing a little bit better, and your, your money that is in there is going to be a little more safe. And so you diversify. Now, here's what I believe we need to do. All of us need to, be, we need to save for three things. We need to save for emergencies, we need to save for major purchases, and we need to save for retirement. First, emergencies. A recent study found that 23% of Americans have no emergency fund whatsoever. According to an article in January 2023, Fortune magazine, 57% of Americans can't afford a $1,000 emergency. And so, for instance, we had to replace a hot water heater this past week. I wasn't planning on doing that, 
It's not something that I was just looking joyfully forward to, but we had to replace it. It didn't cost $1,000, it cost $4,000. If we didn't have money set aside for an emergency, we would have had to borrow money to have hot water in our house. You save for emergencies because emergencies happen. And then you save for major purchases. What are major purchases? Well, today, tires for your car are a major purchase. They cost money. And can I tell you, your tires are going to wear out. The shingles on your house, if you own a house, you're going to have to replace those shingles. And when you do, you're going to go, oh, my word. It costs that much? I mean, unless you know how to get up there on your roof and do it yourself, it's going to cost you some money. And even if you're just buying the shingles, it's going to cost you some money. You've got major purchases that you need to be prepared for. Because if you're not, when they come up, you're going to be putting them on a credit card, and it's going to cost you a whole lot more. And then you need to save for retirement. Now, I want you to listen. If you're younger than I am, and you think that you're going to have social security when you get around, if Jesus tarries, you're foolish. I don't mean to burst your bubble, but I want you to be prepared. Now listen, because you'll hear political parties tell you that this political party wants to do away with social security. No political party wants to do away with social security. If you're on social security right now and if you're already drawing it, you're safe. No one is saying they're going to take your Social Security away. But there are some people that are at least wise enough to realize that we're spending more out of the Social Security pot than we're putting in. And sooner or later, it's going to be drained. And when it's drained, there's not going to be any money for anyone else. And so you have to do something with Social Security. That means that you either have to raise the retirement age when you can get it, you have to lower the amount that you can get, or you have to put a cap if you earn this amount of money, you can't draw Social Security. I mean, there's only a certain amount of things that you can do to save the Social Security system. And I tell you that to tell you, if you're here and you're younger than I am, and you're thinking that Social Security is going to be there for you when you retire, oh, goodness gracious, I feel, I feel for you. Because I'm afraid it's not. And so if Jesus tarries, you got to figure out something else to take care of yourself when, when you get to that age where you're no longer able to work. The typical financial planner says that you need 70% when you retire of what you're making when you retire to live on. And so to just use figures that are easy to figure out, if you're making $100,000 when you retire, you need enough money set aside so that you can have $70,000 a year once you retire. But a number of financial planners say that that's not enough because of the cost of health care and we're living longer. Now, I'm not a financial planner again, but here's what I know. <laughs> we better all save for retirement. You say, well, I believe Jesus is going to come back before then. I hope he does, praise Jesus. Because this world is a mess. It's a hot mess. And I'm ready for Jesus to come back anytime he's ready. I mean, if he wants to come back before I finish this message, praise Jesus. I'm ready for it. But if he doesn't, we need to be prepared for what's next. 
And part of what's next is retirement. So we save for emergencies, we save for, for major purchases, and we save for retirement. Now, we, Sherry and I, personally save for five reasons. I want to give you these, then I'm going to wrap it up. First, we save in case the unexpected happens. The unexpected will happen, and so you save for it. Second, we save so if the Lord doesn't return before he calls us home, we can still enjoy life. I mean, I, I, I'm not looking at retiring anytime soon. Some of you are going, oh, no. But I mean, as long as I'm healthy and as long as I feel like I'm making a difference for the kingdom, I, I want to do what I'm doing. But there's going to come a day when I'm not effective, I'm not healthy enough, and I, I have to retire. And when I retire, I got to tell you, I don't want to eat potted meat. I don't want to eat spam. Now, if you like potted meat and spam, praise Jesus. You can have all of it. But I'd rather eat a burger. I'd rather eat some salmon. I'd rather eat something else rather than potted meat or spam. I just don't like them. And so when I retire, I want Sherry and I to be able to eat something other than that. Third, we save so that we can leave something to our kids and our grandkids. The Bible says this in Proverbs 13. Good people will have wealth to leave to their grandchildren. Now hear me. I want you to listen. This is important. If you're over 18 and you're going, praise Jesus for that, you need to grow up. You're an adult. And you need to do adult things. Your parents are no longer responsible for you. If you're under 18, your parents by law have to take care of you. But at 18, they're kicking you out, I'm telling you. I know your daddy. He's going to get rid of you. <laughs> but I do believe that the Bible teaches that if we can, we ought to be a blessing to our children and our grandchildren. I've got three kids that are involved in ministry in some way, shape, or form. And I realize that they're never going to get rich in ministry. And so back about 10 years ago, God just really laid it on my heart that I wanted Sherry and I to set aside enough so that when we do pass away, we haven't spent everything of our retirement. We have things that we can leave to them and bless them. We want to do that. Fourth, we save so that we can be generous even in our latter years. I mean, just because I'm not working and drawing a check from a place where I'm working doesn't mean that I don't want to be generous. I believe that God instills in our heart, if we're a believer, a desire to be generous all the days of our life. And I am so thankful that some of our most generous people here at Northside are, are old. That didn't sound good, did it? They're retired. They're, they're, they're not working a job anymore. And, and yet, they learned the secret of generosity. And then finally, we save so that we can give even after we die. My wife and I, we developed a will that, that gives 10% of, of our estate to our church. And we didn't have to do that, but we wanted to do that. Because this church has been a blessing to us, and I believe a blessing to the kingdom. And our desire is that the largest one-time gift, that we will ever give to our church will be when we're in the presence of Jesus. 
And we're able to celebrate in the presence of Jesus what we were able to give. Now that's why we save. But I want to close by saying this. We save for the future, but we trust in God. We save for the future, but it's not our saving that gives us hope. It's not our saving that gives us security. It's God who gives us hope. It's God who gives us security because understand at any moment it can all be taken away. In the book of Proverbs chapter 18, Solomon said this. He said, the rich think their wealth protects them. They imagine themselves safe behind it. In other words, what they're saying, what Solomon is saying is the will, the rich see their wealth as this wall that protects them from every attack that this world can place upon them. And yet what Solomon is implying is your wealth won't protect you from anything because at any moment it can all be gone. And then 1 Timothy chapter 6, passage that we focused on last week, it says in verse 17, teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud, not to trust in their money, which is so unreliable. Their trust should be in God who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. Solomon is saying, don't trust in your wealth. Don't trust in your riches. Don't trust in money. Trust in God. Because in the end, he will give you everything you need to enjoy life. He may not give you everything you want. But he will give you everything you need if you will trust him. And so I would tell you today, it is a biblical principle to save. And until Jesus calls you home, you need to live within your means. You need to save for the future. But understand, it's not your money, it's not your resources that is going to give you hope and peace and joy. It's Jesus. And so you trust in him. And so let me ask you this morning, are you trusting him? No, let me really ask you, are you trusting him? Because... Because if we sat down together and you were completely and totally open with me and you just laid your finances out before me, I could tell you very quickly, are you trusting in God or are you trusting in your finances? Your wealth. It would show by the way we spend. It would show by the way we give. It would show by the way we save. It would show in a lot of different areas. So just ask yourself, really, really, are you truly trusting in God? Are you worried right now about what could happen to our, our economy? Because we really are in a dangerous place right now. Some say that 2030 is going to be a crash. I don't even know if we're going to be here in 2030. But if we are and it's a crash, my God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Amen. If everything I have saved up for retirement tanks, the stock market collapses and everything that's in a mutual fund goes to nil for me, my father still owns it all. 
He promised to take care of me. He promised to take care of all of his children. So you're trusting God. Are you really trusting him in every way? If you're not, then this morning I would say to you, there's nothing more important for you to do than to humble yourself before God and begin to place your trust in the only one who can truly protect you and take care of you, and that's the Almighty God. Trust in God. In just a moment, after our altar time, we're going to have communion. And the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 11 that that in light of communion, we need to examine ourselves. We need to look at our life to see if there is anything that's displeasing to God. So I would challenge you this morning. Look at your life. Look at the way you handle money. Look at the way you look at money. Look at your sex life. Look at how you treat other people. Take a deep dive into your heart. And ask yourself, is it a heart filled with pride? Examine yourself. And then I would encourage you, before we celebrate communion together, to get right with God, whatever it may be. What I want to challenge you to do this morning is just come to the altar and ask God to examine you, show Him, show you those things that are displeasing to Him. And then don't just confess them, turn from them. Then we'll be ready to sit at the table of the Lord. I want you to stand with me. We're going to pray. Pastor Matt and I will be down front in case you want to talk or you need special prayer, but our altar is open. Father God, this is your time. And I ask you to have your way in each and every one of our hearts. Lord, I pray that no one here this morning will leave apart from, Lord, being obedient to what you're saying to us through your Holy Spirit. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we sing.